0: Uh, we've been going through the book of Genesis now for a little while. Um, we made it to chapter 16, and this is the, the account of uh, Hagar and Ishmael, and um, man, that has tons of implications, not only into our lives, but into the world globally as we see all kinds of unrest in the Middle East right now, and it all roots back to this work of the flesh that we read about here in Genesis chapter 16. Before we begin, I was really wanting to give a, 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 a great illustration um, that would help us kind of get some perspective about what we're going to be reading. And um, really, I wanted to uh, give an illustration or a good story about someone else or something else other than myself. But as I began to pray about it and to think about it, um, to my own shame, the best stories that kind of fit. What we're reading about here with Abraham and and Sarai and and Ishmael and Hagar and all these things that that tie together, the best stories that I have are ones about myself. And um, with that being said, I have to confess that I really hate to wait. I hate waiting. And because of this, um, I've done things and I've said things in my impatience that I have later regretted. Anybody relate to that? Yeah, that's for my own comfort. <laughs> and um, I know that this hating wait is something, uh, or hating to wait on someone or something is something that all of us don't like. As a matter of fact, I began to think about it, and you know, I've never heard anyone ever say, "I sure wish this line could just be a little bit longer," or, or, or say, "I wish we had just a few more red lights in this town." right anybody here ever wished that something wrong with you i'm telling you if that's the case and and if i'm to be completely honest with you i i, I kind of mentioned that because the greatest place of frustration for me in regards to waiting has to be while i'm driving because i like to get from point a to point b as quickly as possible needless to say or maybe even as quickly as impossible but needless to say i really struggle with being patient when i'm at a stoplight particularly a stoplight where the line is so long do you guys ever experienced this especially in the summertime around here where the line's so long that it prevents me from making it through the intersection when the light fern- finally turns green right and then you got to wait there for a second time a second cycle of the lights before you can make it through the intersection i'll tell you what that just even thinking about it just causing me oh I just, and I just picture myself there. I just, it's a pray for me, please. And, and don't pray that I just pray that God delivers me. I don't want more practice in this area. <laughs> but there are other areas of waiting that I do struggle with in addition to just being or stuck at stoplights. That's not, not the only area. But I, spef- I specifically mentioned this to you because there's an example I have for you, an example that I was faced with that was exactly this type of situation just last week when I was in Pueblo. And it happened while I was exiting I-25 and trying to get onto Highway 50 in order to come back to Canyon City. And when I exited I-25, the traffic was back all the way up the exit ramp and it wasn't moving Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, because what I could see is I could see, even though I could see that the traffic wasn't moving, um, I could see the lights. I could see, I couldn't see the reason for why the traffic wasn't moving, but I could see the lights and they just kept cycling, green to red, nobody moves, green to red, nobody moves. Furthermore, I could see the traffic on Highway 50. And they were being allowed through the intersection even though the light was green for the line that I was in. How unfair is that, right? And it's like, will you go? And, you know, I finally concluded that there must be some kind of an accident, right, holding up my line of traffic. And 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 so as I sat there trying to work through my, fl- fr- my frustration and trying to be holy, right, a man of God, I, I was telling myself that... You know, at least I'm not an accident, and I can I can pray for the persons who are down there, and and that's right, and and all I was telling myself this is really a good opportunity for you, Sean, to be able to, pay, to 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 wait patiently and grow in this area of your life that you know to be weak. Well, after what seemed to be two hours or so of waiting, which was probably really only five minutes, I had had enough. And so I, took my, I looked for an opportunity to leave the line that I was now kind of boxed in. There, there I was like, okay, maybe I can drive down the medium on the side. And I started thinking, well, the only thing I could really conclude is that I needed to cross the grass-filled medium back onto I-25 and make my way down to Eagle Ridge Exit and travel another way home. And you know what? This is what I did. However, as I drove through the grass, bounced back onto I-25, <laughs> exited off the next off-ramp there at Eagle Ridge, you know what, I was met once again with a line, a long line of traffic that was sitting at the red light. And even though this line was moving, it was moving at a snail's place. It must have taken seriously like four cycles of the light to get through the intersection. Needless to say, when... Um, When I finally made it through intersection, my hopes of open roads and green traffic lights all the way home were immediately crushed by, again, slow-moving traffic and at least a 30 more or so traffic lights, which were all red as I tried to navigate my way back to Highway 50. Needless to say, this quote-unquote time-saving detour that I put myself on was a disaster. And when I was finally able to make it to Highway 50, I concluded that it would have been much quicker if I'd have just sat in the line that I had first was in and waited patiently. Now, when it comes to detours, there are those, like I just described, that we impose on ourselves, self-imposed detours, where we choose to go in a way that seems right to us, in a way that appears to be able to get us from the place we want to go to the place that we need to go or whatever more easily or more quickly. But then there there are other detours, detours that... Um, Others want to impose on us. In fact, a few years back, I took my family to Yellowstone National Park. That's when we had a minivan. And we borrowed Keith and Sandy Nordell's tent trailer. Thank you for that, by the way. That that was was wonderful once we finally got there. Um, But along the way, on like the back roads of Wyoming, because they're all back roads in Wyoming... We were driving, we ran into some road construction, and there was already a problem with my van. It had some air suspension on it that just decided it wasn't working, so I had this tent trailer and uh, no air suspension, so it was already kind of sagging in the rear, the van was. Plus, we were loaded with like six people and all of our stuff. You know how it is. Picture Jed Clampett, it, you know, traveling down the road through the back roads of, of Wyoming. Well, that was us. Well, we come to this construction, this road construction, and we're detoured, you know, first of all, it's real slow, you get stopped, and so that's, that's already, you know me, that's a frustration, I'm waiting there, and then we, we get detoured onto this makeshift construction road that was just horrible. It was filled with such large potholes that you, you, you actually kind of disappeared in them. And it was one of those road construction things, and the reason we had to wait is because you had a pilot car, Right? You had a pilot car you had to wait to navigate you through. And, and, and so he's trying to take us around these big old huge potholes. Well, he's saying my van is bottoming out <laughs> over and over again on this detour to the point that the undercarriage hit so much that it literally began to tear the tow hitch off of the bottom of my van. When we finally got off the road, we made it to the next city. And, and we didn't. it was so bad, I was like, I'm going to have to buy another car. <laughs> but we found somebody who was willing to take the risk and reweld it all back on, and we were all gone away. But the point is is that detours, guys, in whatever instance they are, detours are always worse than the main road, always worse than the path that you're on. And this is also true in regards to spiritual kinds of things. And any kind of detour that takes us away from or out of the plan of the will of God is always worse. And here in Genesis chapter 16 is the record of this painful spiritual detour that Abram and his wife Sarah took that brought conflict, tons of conflict, not only into their own home, but into the world that we live in today. A conflict that is referred to today as the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's no little thing, is it? It's quite a big detour. But the fact of the matter is that this account, which we're going to read here in a moment, is much more than just an ancient history lesson with some kind of modern-day consequences. Considering this account, this story, it gives us a good lesson about walking in faith and about waiting for God or waiting on God to fulfill His promises, patiently waiting on God to fulfill His promises in His way and in His time. And through this lesson, we're going to see exactly how dangerous it is for us to depend upon our own wisdom when we take a spiritual detour and exactly what needs to take place in our lives when we find ourselves off of that path that God has put us on. With that, if you'll follow along with me in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, The Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded, that's key, underline this, Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar her maid to the Egyptian and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And after, Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. and, And when she saw that she had... "'Conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. "'Then Sarai and Abram, then Sarai said to Abram, "'My wrong be upon you. "'I gave my maid into your embrace, "'and when I saw that she had conceived, "'I became despised in her eyes. "'The Lord judged between you and me. "'So Abram said to Sarai, "'Indeed, your maid is your hand, in your hand. "'Do to her as you please. "'And Sarai dealt harshly with her, "'and she fled from her presence.' Now the angel of the Lord, verse 7, found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress, and key word here, submit yourself under her hand. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and and, and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. By the way, Ishmael, we'll talk about this. It means literally, it means God hears. He shall be a wild man in his hands. Verse 12 shall be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. Then, excuse me, verse 13, he shall call, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also, for have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Beer Lehi Roy, Observed, it is between Kadesh and, Ber- and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram, or a- a- Abram, was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Father, we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. And we know, God, that when you speak to us through your word, it is you who have, who have counted these things because you have um, the desire to, to speak to us through them. So, Lord, we pray, God, that you would do that this morning. Empower me by your spirit, Lord. We trust in you, God, to now speak to our hearts and our minds to each person and in each place where we're at. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, if you jump back to the beginning of this chapter, as we look back to the first four verses, I want to point out that in the first four verses, we read here what Abraham and Sarai saw as the problem. That's always the starting point, whether it's whether it's you're in the line of traffic like me, and you're waiting there, and you're looking, and you're seeing things. We look at our lives, and we, we assess things, and we go, when, 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 we, when, we, when we move beyond or out of the will of God, we, we look at things with our own eyes, right? Not by faith, but by our own eyes, and we see a problem. That's where it began. Abram and, and, Abraham and, and Sarai saw a problem. Now, was this a problem for God? There's no problem for God. God had made a promise, and we're going to talk about this, but Abram and Sarai, specifically Sarai in this thing, she saw a problem, and it was the fact that Sarai bore Abram no children, and when we're told about the detour that they took in an attempt to give Abram an heir by taking Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant, as his wife, in light of this, it's worth noting how they then stumbled in their faith and got to this place. To begin with, we know from verse 16 that Abram, it says, was now 86 years old when he, um, or excuse me, He was now 86 years old. And when God had first come to Abram and and initially called to him to come out of the land of the Chaldeans, right, to a land that God was going to take him to, a land that he did not know, he was 75 years old at that time. And at that time, when God had called Abram into that land, to the promised land, to leave behind the land of his fathers, we know that God also made several other promises to Abram. One of these promises was for an heir. And he said that from the heir that God would bring forth from Abram, that he would give many descendants and raise up a mighty nation. In light of this, we can see that Abram, first of all, the thing to see is that Abram had been walking God with, with God now for 11 years, 11 years with the Lord. And from our study through the last four chapters, as we've been looking at the life of Abram, And seeing God calling to him and walking with him and all these things, we've seen that Abram has learned some valuable lessons about faith. And he's also learned a lot about God, this God who's called him out, whom he had chosen to follow, whom Abram had chosen to follow. However, we also see that these 11 years of walking in faith with God was also a time of waiting. It was also a time of waiting these 11 years on God was a time of waiting of the fulfillment of the promises that God had made. And I don't know about you, but 11 years, at least in my perspective of things, is a long time. It's a long time. And we know from last week's study that Abram had already wavered in his faith as he had waited. Remember, there was he was afraid he was going to die, and, he, and God had made this promise his son, and there was no error at, at this point. The only error that Abram said he had was was a man from Dismascus, Eleazar, a servant in his house. Someone whom he had appointed in his own fear, not trusting for God to do the work. He'd already stumbled in his faith. But as we look at all this and relate it to our own times of waiting on God, or waiting on God's plans to come to pass in our lives, we need to remember Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, guys. Because in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, it tells us that we should exercise our faith with patience in order to inherit the promises of God. You know, one of the things, we were at a conference this last week, and and, um, it was in Aurora, and one of the things that um, was brought up in a time of, of worship and seeking the Lord was there was a question asked, does anybody doubt that the Lord's coming? Is anybody beginning to doubt the Lord's return? And guys, this was a group of pastoral leaders of people in leadership ministry, and there were people who confessed and said, we're doubting. We see the things that are going on around us, and we're going, where is the Lord? And the Bible tells us to not not doubt the Lord's return, to not count God's promise of return as a slack promise, as some do, or as some will in the end days. And I I point that out because even in our our own living hope of knowing that the Lord's coming back and He's going to take us to be with Him someday, we have to do that with patience in order to inherit the promises of God, the promise, much less all the other promises that God makes to us. And the fact of the matter is, is God has, as we look at this and consider this, we must keep in mind that God has a perfect timetable for everything that He wants to do. I love that because when you study out Scripture from the very beginning all the way to the very end, you see that God's just not willy-nilly about what He does. He's calculated. He's organized. He has a plan. He's a God of order. And He, being all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, and being that God who we love and serve and know, He has a plan, not only for our lives, but for the whole world. A plan. A plan. And his plan is calculated in according to a time frame that he set forth. I love it in the book of Esther when, when, when Esther's uncle says, you know what? And he's encouraging her to, to, to go and do what God's calling her to do. And he said, you know what? What do you know? Well, we don't know. Maybe God's appointed us for such a time as this. And we know that to be true. And God has a timetable for everything that he wants to do. Not only in the world that we're living in, but in your guys' lives and in my life individually. And pur- there's a purpose. There's a time frame that God's working. Why? Because he has a plan. He has a plan. And when we consider God's time for the birth of Isaac... The son, the heir, the son of promise. We need to keep in mind that this future heir of Abram was part of God's great plan of salvation. God's great plan of redemption for all the earth. Because through this line, the Messiah would come. However, as Sarah waited for God to provide an heir, we see that she became impatient. She saw a problem. Stoplight was red. Nothing was moving. And in light of all this, it's important to understand that when God gives us a problem, there's often a space of time before the fulfillment of that promise comes to pass. And I'm going to answer the reason for why in a minute. You see, understand that when God gives a promise, there's often a space of time before the fulfillment of that promise comes to pass. Another thing I hate waiting for is for vacations. I don't know about you guys, it's like you plan a trip and it's like, man, that last month just go slow, two weeks, three weeks, you know, it's finally counting down. It's like, I almost just don't even want to know. I just want to be like, okay, we're leaving today. Someone just plan it all and then tell me so I don't have that waiting part of it. But, but, but God has a plan and a purpose for all that. Now, as we look at Abram, Abram, who is now 86, we know that it has already been 11 years of waiting, we think that might be long. If we jump ahead to verse 20, or to chapter 21, where it finally does count the birth of Isaac to us, we see that it would be an additional 14 years before the birth of Isaac. That made him 100 years old. 100 years old before Sarah would conceive and give birth to Isaac. Now, the question that all of us are probably wondering that I already kind of, kind of alluded to is, why would God wait? Why would God wait 25 years to... May I say it like this, make good on a promise that he had made. Why would God do it? And the answer is given to us in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, it tells us, it says that from Abram, it says, from Abram who was as good as dead. If you're 100 years old, you're about as good as dead. In lots of ways, right? But especially in the ability to be able to make your wife conceive. It says but it says yet in Hebrews chapter eleven, verses eleven and twelve, the answer for why it says it says, From Abram who was as good as dead, God brought forth a son of promise, and the descendants is as numerous as the stars in the sky. In other words, we see that as God was waiting, he was waiting for the time when it would be impossible for Abram and Sarai to naturally conceive in their own. And God did this so that he alone would get the glory. That's what it says there. So that, so that it would be, Abram and Sarai would be almost, they would be completely taken out of the equation. And the Apostle Paul writing about faith in Romans chapter 4 or verse 20 tells us, it says this, as we look at how this applies to our own lives. He says, what is truly done by faith is done for the glory of God and not for the praise of men. What is truly done by faith is done for the glory of God and not for the praise of men. Another way of looking at this is to say that as we wait in faith, it creates the opportunity for, God to, for, for people to see God working miraculously through us. As we wait in faith, it provides the opportunity, it creates the opportunity for people to then see God working miraculously through us. And when people see God working through us, and may I even add, in spite of us, like, like God did with Abram and Sarai, they have no other choice but to praise God, going, man, look what God did with that donkey. It was a miracle. And I think that every time, I think that every time when someone comes up here and says, man, what you said was, was, was just hit me right where I was at, I'm like, wow, God, you still use this donkey in spite of me. In spite of me, God, you still do wonderful things through me. When we step out in faith, when we're willing in faith, when we wait in faith. Furthermore, these times of waiting, guys, these times of waiting in faith are designed by God to not only do a work through us, but to do a work in us. Do you see that? Why? Why? Why does God call us to wait in faith patiently? Because God then can do the work through us, but he also then does the work in us. Meaning it's God's way of providing the opportunity for us to exercise our faith. And this is one of the ways that God then builds up our faith. Who wants to have a greater faith? Come on, who wants to have greater faith? I know you know it's kind of a trick question because you know the answer is then God's going to give you opportunity, Right? Am I dying? I'm burning these batteries right up. Okay, we'll see if we can make it. Um, yeah, I mean, I want to have greater faith, but you know, it's like lifting weights. You know, I wanna I wanna get ripped, bigger, stronger. You wanna be stronger in your faith? You wanna be more defined in your faith, you wanna have greater faith. It means that you're gonna have to exercise, you're gonna have to wait patiently as God does the work in you. And, and, and it's through, but here's the thing, it's through waiting patiently that we then draw near to God. Because as you're waiting patiently and not acting on your own, taking the, the, the detour and hopping the grass medium and bouncing back onto another road, only to be greater detoured or to find a road that's not as good as the one that God would have you on, when you do this, you know what, you're going somewhere other than God. But when you're waiting patiently as God's working in you, it's because you're drawing near to God you're drawing near to God. And we're doing that in order to receive the peace, right? Not only the peace, but the assurance that God's going to tell me everything's going to be okay in spite of what I'm able to see with my eyes. Walking by faith, not by sight. Remember in James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, it says, my brethren, count it all joy when you get to go on vacation. When you fall into various trials, why? Because it's the knowing then that the testing of your faith through that produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work in you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Unfortunately, as was the case with Abram, we also stumble in our faith. Why? Because our flesh is weak. And in our weakness, what happens is we begin to listen to our own words or to the words of others rather than to the words of God, where the Bible says faith comes from, right? This is exactly what we're told in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. And back in chapter 14, when we were reading about Abraham originally stumbling in faith in this area, we know that he eventually began to listen to God, and he exercised faith, and we're told that they then, as he exercised faith, hearing God, hearing the word of God, he believed what the Lord said, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's what we studied last week in chapter 15. But here in verse 2, it tells us that Abraham did something different with his ears, What did he do? It tells us that he then heeded the voice of his wife. In other words, he turned his ears away from the words of God, where faith comes from and and is built to listening to the words of his wife. And when he did so, he stumbled in his faith. And he began, here's the other thing, he began to walk in his flesh. When you stumble in faith, you're going to walk in your flesh. And so in verses 3 and 4, if you look here with me in verses verses 3 and 4 of chapter 16, it tells us that Abram took Hagar as his wife and she conceived, but this was a work of the flesh, not a work of God. And one of the greatest evidences of this is that it did not produce joy and peace, did it? The outcome wasn't joy and peace. On the contrary, This work of Abraham's flesh brought forth jealousy and envy and division and it caused Hagar to despise Sarah, her mistress, and it caused Sarai to treat Hagar harshly. Yet this situation is a classic example of what we read in in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, which says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he also sows to his flesh. Will of the flesh reap corruption. In light of this, we need to see that there are clear evidences, guys. This is I'm going to bring it all together. So if you're taking notes, here it comes. We need to see that there are clear evidences in our lives, specifically when we are walking by faith and not by sight. Look for these road signs as you're traveling down the road to assure you that you're walking by faith. To begin with, when we're walking by faith, Guys, there's a willingness, a wantedness, a wantingness to wait on God. When you're walking by faith, there's a willingness to to wait on God. Additionally, when we're walking by faith, we're only concerned for the glory and the praise of God. Self is out of the equation. What does God want? How will God be glorified? Will people praise God for this or will they praise me? And if you're walking by faith, an evidence of that is that your only desire or, or your greatest concern is for the glory and praise of God. Furthermore, when we're walking by faith, we're acting on the authority of God's word. And, you know, that's, so, that's such comforting because it doesn't matter what anybody else says or does at that moment. You know what? We're doing the youth center downtown and we've been, we've been hit by all kinds of, of, of enemies, you know, and voices and people and city government and fire department and planning and zoning and, and, and either, even others who begin to doubt through this process and go, oh, maybe we shouldn't be doing this or maybe we shouldn't be doing that and, and all this adversity. And you know what? And I know what God's spoken to me. God's revealed his word to me and to others that this is what we're going to be doing. And you know what? And, and when we're walking by faith, we're acting on the authority of God's word and it gives us assurance in those moments. Of going, no, I ain't wavering. This is because God has spoken it to me. Not only that, when we're walking by faith, we're, not, we're acting on the authority of God's Word and we're living in obedience to God's Word. Those two go together. Acting in the authority of God's Word and then living in obedience to God's Word. And lastly, whenever we're acting upon true biblical faith, you know, it's, 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 it's like, how do I walk by faith? When do I know I'm walking by faith and not by sight? Because we can be deceived. All these things play into it. But, but ultimately, what we see here is that whenever we're, we're acting upon true biblical faith, whenever we're walking in accordance to true biblical faith, God will bring joy and peace into our lives, even though we may be surrounded by conflict. The bottom line is, is walking by faith is living without scheming. It's living by waiting patiently on and resting in God to do in us and through us the work that He's promised or said He's going to do. Now as we continue on, and we kind of pick up maybe verses 5 and 6 here, if you want to look to these things, I want to point out that this thing that Sarai had done by offering Hagar to, to Abram, that was a normal thing back in that day. It was a common practice to do that if you had a wife who could not give you a child, it was common to take another wife. It wasn't, this doesn't mean it was uh, permissible by God. It was just a common practice of the day, just like there's lots of common practices in our world, in our society today, that God by no means says is okay. However, in other words, as we see this, we have to look at it in a spiritual light and go, what they did was in accordance to man's wisdom, not God's wisdom. And it's clear that God did not approve or accept this when we read, if you look to verse 8, that when the angel of the Lord did appear to Hagar after she had fled into the wilderness, he refers to her as Sarah's maid and not as Abram's wife. Likewise, once Sarah and Abraham had reaped what they had sown, it's evident to them, um, it was evident to them that what they had done was not according to God's will. Do you ever have those moments afterwards? Like, oh why did I do that? Why did I do that? Because you're reaping what you've sown. And this is why Sarai spoke to Abram in verse 5 and said, my wrong be upon you. Now, she wasn't like, it's all your fault. You know, my wrong be upon you. It it, it wasn't that way. And and also the same true when she said, let the the Lord judge between me. In other words, Sarai was seeing the fruit of what their actions had brought forth and was saying to Abraham, what we've done is wrong and we both know it. That's what she was saying. What we've done is wrong and we both know it. And she was saying equally, we're both at fault. We're both at fault. Now, because we know that it was wrong to have more than one wife, our first response made to be look at the words of Sarai that she spoke and only connect them to the moral issue of Abraham having physical relations with Hagar. However, we got to look to the root of everything that's being talked about here. And the root of the immoral act, okay, the root of the immoral act was what? It was unbelief, right? And more than likely, the sin of unbelief is what Sarai was referring to when she said in verse 5, "Let my wrong also be on you. And the point is, is they were both to blame for what they had done and for what they had been produced in their flesh as it was a result of unbelief. And God always wants to get to the heart of the problem, the root of the problem. You know, we're so, we're so our tendency is to look outward at the little things that are going on and never look at why we do this. The sin of unbelief. And you know, and this reveals another practical lesson in that, that what is produced by our flesh in our own strength or by our own wisdom, it cannot and be mixed, to, it cannot and, and it will not, it's like oil and water, it cannot and will not ever be mixed together with the works of God. What we do in our own strength, what we do in our own wisdom, what we do in our flesh cannot be mixed together, will not mix together with the the works of God. In fact, this becomes very clear to us when we reach chapter 17, where God makes known to Abram that Ishmael was not going to be accepted as an heir. In fact, in verse 18 of chapter 17, Abraham really struggled with this, and he even cried out to God for his son, for his child, his work of the flesh, to be accepted by God, saying, Oh God, that Ishmael might live before you. The point is, is we can take the things that our flesh desires, which are not of God, And we can deceive ourselves into thinking that it's some kind of a blessing when it's clearly a curse and go, oh God, may this just live before you. May this just be accepted to you. And God goes, no way. This is not good. It doesn't mix together with what my plan is for your life, in your life, or through your life. It needs to go. But we must remember Romans chapter 14, verse 23, which says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. It's that clear, guys. In other words, the promises of God do not mix together with our self-efforts. And neither do the works of the flesh mix with faith. And you know what? I've got to wrap it up with this. Dang it anyway, I have so much more. We're going we're to have to wrap it up with this. Because let me, let me say this again. The promise of, promises of God, I don't care which one it is. Think about a promise that God's made to you. Promises of salvation, personal promises in your own life. Think about these promises. The promises that are filtered throughout all of Scripture that we can claim as the sons and daughters of God. Whatever it is, the practical lesson for us is that the promises of God do not mix with our self-efforts, and neither do the works of our flesh mix together with faith. And, And I point that out because this practical lesson that we've been studying for our daily living is confirmed through its spiritual representation in Ishmael and in Isaac. Ishmael, who was it says was born of the work of the flesh and who was likened to the keeping of the law, which leads to bondage, and Isaac, who was born of the promise, who is likened to faith, which ushers in the grace of God and sets us free. And the Apostle Paul writes about this spiritual representation in his letter to the Galatians. If you want to turn over there, you can. It's in chapter 4, verses 21 through 30. The worship team, if you want to come up, I really am going to wrap it up with this. In verse 21, Apostle Paul writes and he says, he says, tell me you desire to be under the law. In other words, he says, tell me you who desire to do the works of your flesh and have them accepted before God. That's really what he's saying. Because the Galatians, it says, remember Paul goes, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you would turn away so quickly from the grace of God and go back to the law? In other words, thinking that there was something that you could do to make God acceptable or to, 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 that God would find you acceptable because of the work that you did. You know, we're all prone to this, guys, because it goes back to even what I said earlier on. Sometimes our heart condemns us and the enemy whispers in our ear and goes, God doesn't accept you. God doesn't love you. God doesn't want to hang out with you. And he, in, in our heart, and Satan tries to get us to believe that the promises of God aren't true, and that not only that, then we begin to feel, well, I've got to do something, right? I'm going to go to church on Sunday and, and, and Wednesday. Or I'm going I'm to read my Bible for an extra whatever. You know you, These things that we think somehow produce some kind of holiness in us, which don't. They don't. And Paul writes and he says, tell me to these Galatians who have been bewitched, he said, you desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, don't you know what it says? For it is written that Abram had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman, Hagar and Sarai but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be, he says, interpreted figuratively as these women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. And we know that's where the law came to Moses, bearing children for slavery, he said. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds With present Jerusalem, in other words, he's going to the other side of it. For she is in slavery with her children, but Jerusalem above is free. God's kingdom, God's house, and she is our mother. For it is written, "Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear! Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor!" For the children of the desolate, he goes on, will be one, will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now he says. You brothers like Isaac, believers speaking to those of us today, you brothers, we're like Isaac, we're the children of the promise, is what he says. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. We're persecuted by the law, by bondage. But what does it say? But what does the scripture say? It says, cast out that slave woman and her son. Don't try to mix it all together. Be set free, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In other words, guys, there is nothing that we can do to bring forth the promises of God for this life or for the eternal life, more importantly. For the eternal life to come. And there's no good work that we can do that would ever present us righteous before God. Because there's no good in us, the Bible says, apart from God. Rather, it's patient faith. Okay? Getting back. If you've deterred this morning and you found yourself deterred, come back. It's patient faith, it says, in Jesus alone that opens the door for the work of God that brings into our lives the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God that brings and gives eternal life. Patient faith. Patient faith. And the one thing that brings our faith. And patiently waiting on God, the works of God together, is our submission to God. And that's what's being demonstrated to us in the final verses of this chapter as we read about the angel of the Lord coming and speaking to Hagar. And that's what we'll look at next week. Father, thank you for this time. God, really what this points us to is is that the only way to live in patient faith is to have a relationship with you, to know you, To know that you're the God who sees us, to know that you're the God that hears us, to know that you're the God that's died for us and has given everything for us so that we may live our lives in submission to you. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here, including my own heart and areas in my own heart, God, that I know that I resist you and that I hold back in lack of submission to you, I pray, God, that we would call out for forgiveness. And, 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 and live lives that are submitted to you, knowing that you see, that you hear, that you care about us, that when we cry out to you, God, that you come to us and say, I'm here. Father, we love you, and we know, God, that you love us, and we worship you with this last song. We pray, God, that you go with us into this next week, and, God, that we would walk by faith, trusting in you and waiting upon you. In Jesus' name.